don't wear it out, save it for next year. I think that was a little nursery thing we used to say when we were kids, right? You remember that? Maybe, maybe, does anyone remember that stupid saying? Was I the only one that was subjected to that nonsense? Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. You're just going to turn over a few chapters, aren't you? Just a couple there. Acts chapter 15. This morning we will be expounding verses 6 to 21, Lord willing, that we make it that far. We're going to certainly give it an attempt. Uh, before moving forward, I'd like to uh, briefly mention where we've been so that we can establish a context for our passage. Uh, just bear with me as I kind of thread the needle a little bit. Men went out from Jerusalem preaching a false message of salvation or a false gospel. They rejected the biblical teaching that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. They claimed that circumcision was critical to salvation and that no man could be saved apart from it, more particularly Gentiles who are non-Jewish people who are, uh, back in those days, were very seldom uh, circumcised. It wasn't a practice that they did. Um, this, this particular group became known as the heretical group, false teaching group, called the Judaizers. The Judaizers came to the church at Syrian Antioch where Paul and Barnabas had been pastoring and preaching and began to preach this false gospel to these non-circumcised Gentile believers. They basically threw the entire church into doubt and confusion as they contradicted Paul and Barnabas's clear preaching. But Paul and Barnabas stood their ground and argued against them vociferously. They would not allow these men to lead this church astray. And they argued and argued and argued in favor of what the Bible makes so clear and what the Lord had made clear to these men. After refuting them, Paul and Barnabas formed a team and traveled to Jerusalem to bring the matter before the apostles and elders, stopping along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria uh, to warn uh, these believers down in this area of these guys who were circulating, to equip them to stand against this error and to gather support. Uh, from other brothers as they were headed to the big church, if you will, in Jerusalem to make their case. They began to, uh, actually as they arrived in Jerusalem amongst the elders and, and uh, apostles and the other believers there, they were warmly welcomed by the whole church. Paul and Barnabas hadn't been there for several years. And uh, they began to, as they were being welcomed, they began to describe the work that God had been doing in the territories they ministered to and planted churches in and how God had saved many, many Gentiles. It was kind of this amazing moment of testimony. And they also warned the apostles and elders about the Judaizers in Syrian Antioch. But as they were speaking and sort of unfolding this error of faith plus circumcision, a legalistic group that's more prone to legalism, I guess we should say, called the Pharisee believers. It was like these believers who came out of this Pharisee group, which was highly uh, legalistic and, and, and just ones that Jesus had to deal with big time during his ministry. There was this small group of these men who were Christians, but who were also kind of practicing out their old beliefs. They sort of rose up and interrupted Paul and Barnabas as they testified and they said, we think it's necessary that Gentile believers be circumcised and instructed to keep the law of Moses. And this is where we left off last Sunday. 
That's about as far as we got. There's a lot of detail and ins and outs and things like that if you go back and listen to the sermons in the last weeks. But that's pretty much where we left off. As we begin to expound the next section to see what happened next in the storyline, in the biblical narrative, I thought it would be helpful to break verses 6 to 21 into five parts, into five teachable parts. Number one will be the debate. We'll see that in verses 6 to 7a. Number two will be Peter's testimony, verses 7b to 12a. Number three will be Barnabas and Paul's testimony, verse 12b. Number four will be James's testimony, verses 13 to 18. And then number five, lastly, what we'll take a look at is the ecumenical ruling. And ecumenical just means all church. The whole church came together to discuss this matter. And so number five will be the ecumenical ruling. It will be the ruling that the leaders of the church decided. And this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to deal with this stuff. And we'll see that in verses 19 to 21. Let's pray and then uh, get to work. Sound good? You going to take some notes today? You going to listen carefully? And Good. Little hoo right there. Father, uh, open our hearts and minds to the truth. The subject that we've been talking about and describing and defining over the last three or four weeks are of monumental importance. What is salvation? What is it? How is one saved? Are they saved by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone? Are they saved by some weird form of grace? Some maligned form of grace? Plus faith, plus a whole bunch of action, plus works, plus duty, plus obedience to the law, plus circumcision to the glory of God and to the glory of man? What is biblical salvation. This is a highly important subject. We've been talking about it. Lord, I pray that those in this room who have yet to come to understand this in a saving way would do so. And only you can bring them to salvation, God. It is through grace. It is by faith. In Jesus Christ, for the glory of God, that's what we've been talking about, Lord. And now, We are going to examine the next text that really kind of drives this thing home. And so open our hearts and minds to the truth today. Without you, and without your work, without your supernatural power, all that is said will fall on deaf ears, on dull hearts. And so make a way for us to believe, understand, live out, and share. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Part 1. The debate. Verses 6 to 7a. It says. And I'll read it. The apostles and the elders were gathered together. To consider this matter. And 7a. And after there had been much debate. Comma. When Paul and Barnabas first arrived at the church at Jerusalem, they were welcomed and began to explain their situation. They began to testify to all the work that God had done and they began to explain the situation with the Judaizers. When they did this, they were in front of the whole church. It says it right over there in verse 4. So when they came to the church, they came to the church to bring this matter, to testify and bring this matter to the church, they were in front of the whole church. 
elders, apostles, various forms of leaders and lay people and just average churchmen. So they were in front of the whole church when they brought this concern. The first thing to notice from verse 6 is that the apostles and elders departed from the larger group to convene or consider the matter. It says the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider, consider this matter. What we see in the original language here is that they basically left the whole other church behind. They went to another room. They went to another location to discuss this matter. They did not discuss this matter in front of the whole church. And I think for several reasons that we'll kind of flesh out a little bit. But this was a subject and topic of the highest level of severity and importance. This particular issue of how one is saved and justified before God needed to be discussed by the elders and apostles apart from everyone else, especially apart from the Pharisee believers who were very quick to speak, very slow to listen, and had no problem with interrupting anything that was going on, and we've already seen that take place. The apostles and elders set a really good example for us here. They set a precedent. Doctrinal matters like this should be worked out. They should be worked through. Uh, they should be settled, if you will, in this sort of way where the elders, obviously we don't have apostles today, but we have elders. We can follow this example of separating ourselves from the larger body and discussing these things and defining these things. And this is a great example that they've set for us here. Doctrinal matters like this should be worked through and settled by church elders rather than by or in the context of the congregation. In any congregation, most congregations, I'd say probably all congregations, you usually have an intermingling of all sorts of theological and doctrinal beliefs and traditions and traditional beliefs and, and preconceived notions, both good and bad. And in some ways, these things are to be celebrated because of the diversity of God's church. But in some ways, they can be very toxic. If you grow up in a particular thread of Christianity that teaches some things false, you're going to bring those beliefs and those thoughts right into the conversation and, you know, you could poison others with these false beliefs and what have you. And so in a congregation at any given moment, you've got, you know, all sorts of different thoughts and different beliefs and different traditions and things like this. You may be one who never grew up in a church context and, and just believes what you believe and God's a superman and, you know, and all these things. And so you would be bringing these kinds of thoughts and things into the situation. The elders, however, are to be settled in these matters, in these doctrinal matters, in accordance with Scripture. They're supposed to be settled in these matters. You can't lead a church in the role of an elder if you're not settled on key and core doctrinal things. Now, this is not to say that as an elder you cannot discuss these things and try to find the deeper meaning or the broader meaning and have debate and even you know, sometimes go at the other elders vociferously and whatever. So, but that is really the forum where these things are hashed out, ironed out, set, and settled when disputes come in the context of the board of elders. It is the elders' responsibility to examine, 
to know, to set, to teach, and to preserve the doctrines of Scripture for the churches they serve. This is not to say that a congregation cannot or should not study and discuss doctrine and debate these things. This is encouraged. You know, you're not to be this group that just is spoon-fed, you know, whatever it is that guys are bringing to you. You ought to be engaged in it to some degree as well and talking about things, these things and living these things out and, 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 you know, and lovingly debating amongst each other and building one another up. This is encouraged. All Christians are to be theologians to a degree. We often think of some theologian or scholar as one who just hides in some really fancy library with a lot of, you know, two, three, four hundred year old books. And, you know, one, and they've got a big beard, they, beard, you know, they look, probably a big beard too, but they come out with a big beard. They look like Nostradamus, you know, and they show themselves like the groundhog once a year. And they come out and this is what I think we need, you know. That, that's not a theologian. A theologian is just one who who devotes his life to studying the Word of God, to knowing the Word of God, to living the Word of God, and to training others in the Word of God. And, and so I think so often in the congregation side, we think that, well, that's just his responsibility. That's the elder. That's the theologian. It's his responsibility to know the Word and to feed me and to train me. And I don't have any responsibility other than just to show up and listen and maybe open my Bible once in a while and blow the dust off of it. No. No, Christians are to be theologians to a degree. Every congregate should read and study and apply and discuss and declare doctrine. But it is the role of the elder to examine and find doctrine in Scripture and to set it and to settle these things for the congregation. That's his responsibility to do that. That is a primary role of an elder. This is why an elder is appointed and anointed. The congregation, this is your job, you actually select from your group capable men, godly men, men who are above reproach, have one wife, and you just pretty much can't get away with double wives in this country, which is a good thing, although we're probably headed there. That'll be not good but an elder is supposed to be a man above reproach. He's supposed to be a student of the word of God. He's supposed to be humble. He's supposed to be generous and gracious. A godly man. He's supposed to be a kind of man that sets an example. He's a man that's to know doctrine, to study doctrine, to proclaim doctrine, to teach the congregation, to defend doctrine. It's the congregation's job to select men from their group for that very purpose, to teach doctrine and to perform other duties. Now, there are churches out there that are led by one man rather than a plurality of elders. Kind of a dictatorship thing where they sort of have, you know, I, I want this uh, Mark Souza, that's going to be our pastor, and, and, and he's going to be the guy that's going to lead all of, I just made the name up, he's going to lead all of us, and, and, and you know, and it's, it's the, you know, the, the, the sword rises and falls with him. What he declares and determines is the direction we'll go in, and, and hallelujah, amen, and it's really all him, and we're just kind of following this guy. He gets to determine everything. And this is dangerous, because what if he's wrong on things? What if he is wrong about a particular doctrine? What if he is wrong about a particular practice? What if he has some strange view of something that's so seemingly clear, I suppose, in Scripture. 
you have one guy making all these decisions and determining these things, there's great danger in that. There's a high, high potential for danger. There are churches out there that are led by the congregation. The congregation, you know, determines what to believe and how to practice and live out those beliefs. Every person gives their input and, and you know, and, and you end up with a theological hodgepodge of liberal beliefs and theologically liberal beliefs and antinomianism, no law and then fundamentalism and legalism and you get all sorts of isms and isms aren't usually any good. Stay away from the isms. Unless, of course, it's Calvinism. That's a pretty good one. Just kidding. You guys are like, oh, we got to get him. But, right, if you, if you leave it in the hands of everyone, then, you know, well, hey, this is what I think. Hey, that's a good thought, Jimmy. Let's put that in there. Well, hey, I think this. Oh, that's a good thought, Mary. Let's add that to that. And the next thing you know, we end up with this wide open, full throttle set of beliefs, some crazy, some doctrinal, what have you, and this is who we're going to be, and this is what we're going to live out. And you know what happens in these churches that try to determine all these things themselves when they don't appoint leaders to do it? They end up with little camps. You got this little group under the, all under the same roof, and you've got this group over here. Well, this is what we're about. We're the Philatites. You get this group over here. We're the Aaronites. You get this group over here. We're the Brendaites. Uh, you do. You get all these crazy divisions with people, you know, and, and somehow it all takes place under a roof, but there's always so much, you know, bitterness and inbiting and, and like theological combat. Very, very dangerous practice. These churches divide into separate camps and so on and so forth. And quite honestly, from my own experience of watching the church for many years now, many of these churches just dissolve and go away because of just the combat that takes place in them. And so what does that mean for us? It, it means that we must follow the example of the apostles and elders in this text. First of all, you, you should have a, an elder board with a plurality, multiple elders. Each elder brings certain dynamics into the group and theological study and knowledge and wisdom and you know, various gifts in these things. And so you appoint these guys to sort of set according to scripture doctrine, to uphold it, to settle doctrinal disputes amongst the congregation and these things. And I think in so many ways that's what we're seeing play out in this text. They've set such a spectacular example for us. And you know what? We're really blessed at this church because that's the way that we do it. And why is it that we do it? Is it just a better way to do it? No, it's because what the scripture illustrates. The scripture commands to have elders and to appoint elders and not to have a dictator and to not let the church try to figure out every, you know, everything. And we want to be biblical at this church. Doesn't make us any better than anyone. You know, but God has been merciful and gracious to us in opening our eyes and understanding of scripture and doctrine, these things. And you have capable elders that you've even affirmed. You remember when you affirmed our elder board? We have, I don't know, five guys now with me. And for a church this size, that's plenty of elders. But do you remember when we affirmed the elders over at our other location? That was a pretty special, amazing time that we had together. You affirmed them. You knew their lives. You, you had watched them for probably a year or so, I would think. It was a while. And so we are blessed 
Let the elders in our churches set the doctrinal standards and let them convene to settle doctrinal disputes. And may we submit to the elders as they submit themselves to God and to Holy Scripture. Now notice with me from the text how it says there was much debate. You see it there? Why? Why was there so much debate? Were there some present that were not sure about the matter of circumcision and faith and salvation? Were there some there that were not settled in their doctrinal view of salvation? It could be. I don't think that there was any confusion or unsettledness with the apostles or with James, the half-brother of Jesus and pastor of the Jerusalem church. It could be that some of the elders were a bit uncertain. In any case, the group discussed and debated the subject quite a bit. Much debate was put forth. They went back and forth, raising different points. They asked, how does God save non-Jewish, you know, Gentile people? Does he do it the same way as he did with us Jews? Do they experience what we have experienced? They don't have the law. They don't have our traditions. Jesus came through the Jewish people. Certainly, since they don't have our traditions and the law, and Jesus didn't come through the Gentile people, he came through the Jewish people, there's got to be some differences. Certainly, they'd have to be saved differently than us, for crying out loud, we're the chosen people. I mean, we really don't know how they debated and how many different angles they came at it, but I would think that this, there's strong possibilities for these arguments and points. We know for a fact that they asked, are they too saved by grace alone? through faith alone and Christ alone, for the glory of God alone? Or does God require something more from them than simple faith? We have to remember that the only men in the room at this point that had any experience with Gentiles and ministry to Gentiles were Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. You have the elders and the apostles set apart to discuss this matter. The only guys that had any real good interaction with Gentiles were three. It's an interesting point. They were the only ones in the room who had interacted and ministered to Gentiles. Everyone else present was from Jerusalem, where mostly Jews and, and you know, like Hellenistic-style Jews, and Jewish converts lived and, and did ministry and, and, and had fellowship. It is true, though, that Paul and Barnabas traveled with others down from Syrian Antioch, no doubt some Gentile converts, but they were in the other room with the rest of the church. I said this a couple weeks ago, if you grew up in Judaism, you would know how hard it would be to accept others. All of the traditions and rules and laws and nationalism created within the Jewish mind and heart a radical sense of isolation and disconnect from the rest of the world. Gentiles were actually called dogs. Dogs. And any contact with them or, or even any contact with anything that they had touched or owned, any of their possessions in the Jewish mind would cause the Jewish person to become defiled and unable to enter the temple for several days. Now this sounds completely stupid, but it was real serious to them. And so what am I telling you? There was such a great divide between Jews and Gentiles. It was just this chasm. And the fact of the matter is, is that Christ came to build a bridge over it. 
to link people together in faith. But I can see because of these traditions and this dog-like belief in these things and this view, I can see how some in the group would be more hesitant to extend, extend the hand of fellowship to Gentiles without a few stipulations or even worse, how they might try to add a prerequisite to salvation called circumcision. Now, I'm okay with Gentiles, you know, repenting and getting saved, but man, they got to get snipped. We had to go through that. Why wouldn't we make them do it? We've had to follow the law of Moses, and by golly, we still should submit to it to some degree, not for our salvation, but how else do we know how to live holy lives and please God? We, 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 need, to, we need to place ourselves under the law of Moses, not in a saving way, but in a living way. Why would Gentiles be able to just get saved as we've been saved and not be bound by any of these things? You ever thought like that? You know, you were raised in a particular Christian Christian tradition that kind of added things to what you were to do and, and you lived under that forever and then, and then you look at others and you say, man, they, they're, not, they're not wearing those special clothes. There's something wrong. They're, they didn't do this. They didn't do that. You see, I think that's what's playing out here in the text. That's what the debate is about. Now, there is something really, really cool about all this. And you'd be thinking, how could anything be cool about this? We often classify heresy as a bad and destructive thing, and rightfully so, right? When you have false beliefs that come in and say Jesus isn't enough in these things, I mean, that's, that's atrocious, that's horrible. We often classify those sorts of errors in these things as destructive, and rightfully so. But God uses heresy so often to create within the church doctrinal dialogue, Doctrinal discussion and doctrinal declaration. When heretics come with their false message of salvation, what happens? We look at church history about 2,000 years now. The faithful believers who believe in doctrine, they rise up, they meet, they talk, they define, and they defend the doctrines of the faith and church. This has been the case throughout the church's 2,000-year history. Now, there's no doubt that our doctrines come from the living word of God. Men don't generate the doctrines that are in Scripture. Men just discover them as they are illuminated, as they study. But many of our interpretations and explanations of doctrines were, were formed during the battle for truth at ecumenical councils. Take, for instance, the Nicene Creed. Have you ever heard of it? World-famous doctrine constructed and put together, or statement, I should say, of a particular doctrine back in the 4th century. In fact, it's read in a lot of churches today. You can go and research it. The Nicene Creed is just one amazing statement about Christ. Nicene Creed is really nothing more than an explanation of the doctrine of Trinity, which is what? God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why was it written? For the heck of it? Why did they put that doctrine, that statement of doctrine together in the 4th century? Just because it felt good and it sounded like a good idea? Absolutely not. It was written in response to Arianism, which is a heresy that says that Jesus was created rather than eternal. The Arian heresy was put down in the 4th century 
via the Nicene Creed and an ecumenical council. This thing, this error came and rose up in the church and the council came together to extinguish it and destroy it. And they constructed this great doctrine, this doctrinal statement. It was put down in the 4th century. It was deemed heretical. But it reared its ugly head again and again and again, and even does today to some degree. At the first six ecumenical council meetings, which spanned over 350 years, the Nicene Creed was used as the main document in conjunction with, you know, scripture and these things to refute this reoccurring heresy of Arianism over and over. When the heretics came and they convened in another meeting to discuss it, they looked to the scripture, they looked to the Nicene Creed and said, this is what we affirmed 350 years ago. Why are we even questioning this again? They would reaffirm the Nicene Creed over and over and over. Heresy will so often produce great opportunity for study, for discussion, for clarification, and for declaration. We shouldn't think of heresy as a good thing by no means. But we should know that our good God uses it to build up the church in the truth and to separate the church from the world. Amen? So heresy is a bad thing, but we have a good God that utilizes it to build up and strengthen his church. And honestly to separate those who teach the heresy and the false believers, because there's tons of them in the church, to pinpoint them, to identify them, so that we can change our ministry efforts towards them. We wouldn't receive them as brothers and sisters of the fellowship of the church. We would say they're non-believers spreading heresy. We need to deal with them. We need to try to love them. We need to try to correct them. And if they don't, if they don't repent, then we need to expel them from the church so they don't continue to bring their toxicity into the church and to lead more astray. Now let's move on to part two, Peter's testimony. Peter listened to the debate, and he had experience. He had tremendous experience. At one time, he had been closed off to the idea that God desired to save Gentile people, that God was planning to do it. You might recall his vision and struggle in Acts 10. I had it read for you. Peter had been raised in Orthodox Judaism and was therefore close-minded to the notion that God had planned to save people outside of the Jewish nation. In a vision and, and through the voice of the Lord, he was told that he was basically told about God's global plan to save people from every tribe and tongue. He was told to go to the house of Cornelius, the Gentile centurion, where he would preach the gospel and see revival. Peter obeyed and preached and witnessed the conversion of many Gentiles, which convinced him of God's global plan. Peter had experience, and as the head apostle, he had been appointed to that role by Jesus, he sort of took charge right in the middle of the discussion. They're debating, well, what about circumcision? What about faith? What about us? What about them? What about our laws? What about our rules? What about our ordinances? What about the Mosaic law? What do we do? And it's just as if he kind of stands up and says, hold on. So part two, Peter's testimony, 7b through 12a. What does it say? Peter kicked back, opened up his journal. No, it says he stood up. You know, they're talking and debating, and what does he do? Wherever he's sitting, he's probably reclining, kicking back, you know. He's got a 
stone lazy boy, you know, like the Flintstones. And, and here it is, and they're talking about it and trying to figure it out. They're going back and forth, and at some point he just, he just gets up in their midst. Hold on. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting... This is a great warning. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. Peter reminds the council of his trip to Caesarea and experience with Cornelius and his household. I had it read to you a little bit ago. Acts 11, I think. 1 to 18. A little bit down in... Uh, that's his testimony, actually, where he came back and told the church about his experience at Cornelius' house. That's what I had read to you. When Peter returned to Jerusalem after his mission trip, he explained to his peers what God had done. He was also questioned by guys who were all about circumcision. Did you pick up on that earlier? When he came back and gave the report about the ministry to the uncircumcised, the first thing the circumcised group said was, what about circumcision? Peter convinced them and the church that the Gentiles had been saved by grace through faith just as they had, just as they, Peter and the Jewish guys, had been saved by grace through faith. And the whole church, what was the response when he came back the first time and gave this report a little earlier in the narrative? What was the response? You know, these circumcision guys came up and started making the same argument that we're reading about in our text after Peter said, hold on a second, that's not the way it works. There's how it works. Let me testify to you. What, it, what happened there? How did they respond? Well, no, they still have to get circumcised. No, they completely flipped the switch. Their whole attitude and everything changed. It says back in the text that we read in 18 of 11, they glorified God. And they even said this. This is amazing. This is the same guys here. How quickly we forget, right? They said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Talk about rejoicing. Talk about hallelujahs. So here in our text, it's as if Peter is saying this. It's a little paraphrase. Did you forget about my... Talk to the same guys. Did you forget about my trip to Caesarea? And all that took place up there? Did you forget about my report? I just gave it to you a couple years ago. Did you forget about our discussion and how you became convinced and then glorified God? Have you forgotten these things? Why are you putting, right, right now, why are you doing this? Why are you putting God to the test by trying to bind up our Gentile brothers with the law of Moses? With circumcision. Have you forgotten that neither we nor our forefathers were able to full, totally, full, you know, full, fully uh, obey the law? He says that. We, we couldn't obey the law perfectly. That's why we needed grace. And you're telling us that they, you're telling me that they need to obey it. We couldn't do it. Our forefathers couldn't do it. 
Have you forgotten that our Gentile brothers are also saved through grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as we are? This is his argument. He's reminding them of the report he had given maybe a year and a half, a year earlier, or two years earlier. And what was the result of his testimony in reminding them of where they had already been in the discussions they had already had? 12a says, and the assembly fell silent. We might say that Peter rocked them. They were silenced at once. The debate ended. The forgetful were made aware of their folly and then shut their mouths. Has this ever happened to you? My wife did it to me the other night. (laughs) Glory to God. All two days in a row we'd been talking about uh, theological subject. We'd been talking about None of us, neither of us, reject Paul's authorship of the book of Galatians. It's so apparent, he even identifies himself. But we were talking about, when did he write the book of Galatians? Did he write it before this ecumenical council meeting, or did he write it after? She was saying, well, uh, according to my commentary, it, it could be either. I think it was probably before. And then I would say, no way. You know, look at, look at, look at this particular passage. Look at Galatians 2, 1 to 11. Your answer's there. It's obvious that he wrote it after this meeting. And so we went back and forth on and on and on and on for a couple of days. And, you know, and, and I'm just, uh, I'm terrible. I'm just, if, you know, it's like if I don't get someone to say, you're right, then I just kill them. You, anyone else here do that? I mean, I just, I don't stop. I'm like a rabid badger. And it's, it's not, it's good in some contexts. Like if you're contending for the truth with those who reject it, that's, like, that's great. You want someone who will be vociferous and all that. I'm talking about my wife. You know, she's on one couch. I'm on the other. There's kids in between and they're getting spit all over them because like, you're crazy. There's no way that it could have been written before. Come on, read your Bible. You know, I, you know, I start doing that thing. And she just looks at me and says, here we go. It's the same thing with you always, how quickly you forget. We were having a nice discussion, and you turn it into a sword fight, and you're stabbing me with your words, and you're forcing me, and you're now being mean, and I'm not going to talk to you. And I was like, (laughs) but I was still thinking, she's wrong. She's wrong about two things now. It was written after, and she just jacked me up, and I'm the head of the house. You don't do that to the men, you know. (laughs) Two days later, you know, I was like, what a moron. Not her. Me. How quickly do you forget about these tendencies that you have, these things that you do where you grind people or where you do these things, That's what's playing out in our text. You know, these guys were all united a couple years earlier, and then now, oh, circumcision, you know, with me at my house. Hey, you know what? Instead of just saying it could be either way, I love you, you're my wife, we're one flesh, you know? Let's just continue to talk about this in a loving way. I'm like, you better submit. And I always submit. Okay? I never, I never win. It doesn't matter. I hope you can hear me down there. 
I never win with her. She's just, she's that kind. Just, and that's it. She's stone. And I'm like, ah, I got to get through. Doesn't happen. I don't get anywhere except in trouble. All you sisters are the same way, too. It's just stone. You got this that's stone, but I got this that's stone. I don't know which one's worse, right? Man, how, how quickly do we slip back into these things that we already know? We don't do this anymore. What am I doing? I'm not supposed to debate my wife vociferously. She's my wife. Somehow I've come to believe that, that that's a part of loving her as Christ loves the church. Well, he would be like that with the church if he had to make a point, wouldn't he? There's my opportunity to jack her up. Nah. Nah. How, hurt, how quickly do we forget and slip into these hurtful patterns or old ways of thinking or these traditions, right? You know, you, you, you're raised a certain way and you have a tradition and, and you realize, wow, I've got liberty and freedom in Christ and all that. And that, that tradition's gone. I don't have to worry about it anymore. You know, whoo, yeah, I'm freed in Christ. Two years later, you better get circumcised, dog. How often do we forget about the clear teachings of Scripture and the promises of God? How often do we forget about the amazing life-changing things God reveals to us? On Tuesday, God makes some important thing lucidly clear and we rejoice. Hallelujah, God spoke to me, brother. But on Friday, we act as if nothing happened on Tuesday. We return to our former Ways and thoughts and worries and anxieties and concerns and arguments. What is the number one reason why Pastor Phil likes to argue with people? He's trying to justify himself. He's trying to make sure that people knows he's right so he'll be loved and accepted. Trying to justify myself. That's why I do it. But the scriptures make clear that I'm justified before God by faith. So why would Pastor Phil or any of us need to go out and make sure that everyone knows that we're right all the time? And that we would force ourselves on people. If we're justified before God, I have nothing to prove to man. It's something to consider. Now, not all men abuse debate. I, I can. You probably can. But I'm justified we can be so incredibly forgetful at times. This is so frustrating. It's even maddening. Amen? And this is why we need Peter, men like Peter, people like Peter in our lives. Believers who are close, who are attentive and willing to rise up and remind us of the truth. We need friends like Peter who will testify to us, who will remind us. Don't you remember, Phil, what we talked about? We were united. We rejoiced together. My wife is like a Peter in some ways for me. We need friends like Peter who will say, Hold on a second, you're trying to go back down that road. We've already been down it together. 
Let's not return to that way of thinking or acting. God already settled this matter. Let's not put him to the test by reyoking ourselves or others to unfruitful thoughts, unfruitful words, or unfruitful deeds. Right? This is what Peter did. He reminded them of what they had already heard, what they already understood, what they had already agreed upon. Salvation is a grace thing, not a law thing. We aren't bound to the law, so don't bind the Gentile disciples to the law. Peter was the head apostle, which means that he spoke with the highest level of authority. His words alone here would have been enough to settle the matter. But he's not the only one that testified in the story, is he? Let's move on to part three. Barnabas and Paul's testimony. Verse 12b. They were debating. If I'd have been in there, I'd have been in it. I'd have been in it. In it to win it. Hey, justify me. They were debating Peter stands up and says, hold on, you remember what we talked about? You remember what we agreed upon? He's not the only one. And they listened, it says, right? You see it? And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Luke here did not, our author, our historian, did not go into the details of Paul and Barnabas' mission trip to Cyprus, Galatia, and Pamphylia here because he had already done so in previous chapters. We spent all kinds of time studying their ministry and how it fleshed out what they did. We've examined these things. But here in this text, he did highlight a very important aspect of their report, the report they were giving of our missions trip. You know, here, here's what they're saying. He highlighted here a very important aspect of the report. And what is it? The miraculous events that happened in the course of their missionary work. He refers to their, these miraculous events that took place as they were out proclaiming the gospel as what? Signs and wonders. During their trip, signs and wonders took, places, took place in several cities. You might recall, in Paphos, we read about and studied the blinding of Bar-Jesus or Elimus. That was in Acts 13.11. That was one sign and wonder God did during their trip. In Iconium, we have some unspecified signs and wonders being done. We see that in Acts 14, 3. And do you remember what happened in Lystra? We read about the healing of the lame man. Remember the lame man who had been in the Agora, the shopping center of that particular region? He'd just been there and came out there to beg. And, and he had been healed by Paul, the healing of the lame man, Acts 14, 8 to 10. These mighty deeds were not the work of the missionaries, but of God. It was God that did these things through the apostles' hands. These signs and wonders were done among, as it says, Paul and uh, Barnabas testified to this, among the Gentiles, which means that God authenticated the Gentile mission of Barnabas and Paul, who did not require Gentile believers in Jesus to first become circumcised so that they could become Jewish converts, if you will. Did we read anything about circumcision in the ministry of Paul and Barnabas throughout all of those cities and towns and everything in those, 
Greek provinces, not once did they ever, it's not even mentioned. They didn't make circumcision a part of what they were doing, but God still testified to their gospel and said, this is true by performing miracles. That's what the purpose of signs and wonders is. If somebody proclaims the word back in these days, God would back up what they're saying with a physical, viewable miracle to authenticate their words. That's what took place. The fact that God expressed his approval of the Gentile mission of the two apostles constitutes, uh, constitutes at the same time at the same time a validation of what Peter had said, namely that Gentile believers in Jesus should not be circumcised and be made to submit to the Mosaic law in all of its details. Basically what Paul and Barnabas did is they stood up, they testified, said circumcision wasn't a part of our ministry at all, but God, we were true to God because God backed up. What we were saying was backed up by signs and wonders. Circumcision wasn't one of them. The signs and wonders were, you know, a lame man was healed and a guy who interrupted us preaching the gospel was blinded and there were other things done in Iconium. And so they were backing up what Peter testified to and they were backing it up with their own experience. God saved Gentiles and he performed signs and wonders. Part four, James's testimony, verses 13 to 18. So we had Peter rise up and speak. We had Barnabas and Paul rise up and speak and say, hey, look, this is what we saw. God hooked it up. No circumcision involved. Then we have James's testimony, 13 to 18. After they finished speaking, James replied, I love this. Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of, uh, known, known from of old. Pardon after Paul and Barnabas had finished speaking, James gave the final speech in defense of salvation by grace alone. James began his defense by citing Simeon, who is Peter here. I have no idea why he called him Simeon. This is not some other guy. He's talking about Simon Peter. He's talking about Peter here. Peter had said, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. James affirmed the truth of Peter's testimony by saying, Peter has already related to us how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. It's as if James is saying this, Peter is right. We need to listen to and submit to him because he understands this truth. And he has already related these things to us in prior years about how God did this miraculous work of saving them through faith alone. These Gentiles up in Cornelius' house and so on. James basically, it's really awesome. Peter speaks and then Barnabas and Paul go to affirm what Peter said. And now James affirming what Peter said. Head apostle, these other Three guys are backing up what he testified to. The head apostle has said these things. And so we're backing him up. That's what James is doing. It's as if he's saying Peter's right. We need to listen and submit to him because he understands this truth. 
And then James takes it further. He moves to back up the testimony and authority of Peter, uh, not just with his own words and his own agreement with what Peter has said and reminding them of what happened, but he moves to what's greater than any testimony, and that's the authority of Scripture itself. It's like he said, Peter has said this, okay? He reminded us of what happened. He went up and did ministry. God is saving Gentiles just like us. There's no circumcision. And he says, and here's why he's right, is what James says. Here's why Peter's right. He then quotes from Amos 9, 11 to 12. You will notice, however, if you go back and look at that passage in your Bible, James's rendering of this prophetic text is a little different from how it's rendered. Uh, actually, the way that James put it here is a little different than, than how it's rendered back over in the original passage of your Bible. It's rendered a little different, but it has every bit the same meaning. Some think that he might have been quoting right here from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But, but even it, his, what he says here is a little different from what we see in the Septuagint. Despite the variation, okay, and how James puts Amos here and how it's written back in Amos, despite the variation that we see here, all agree that James is inspired by the Holy Spirit and gave the intended meaning of the text. I'll read it again. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What is this prophetic text back in Amos about? It is about God's global plan to save both Jewish and non-Jewish people Gentiles. It illustrates that God saves Gentiles just as they are, uncircumcised, non-covenantal, and outside of the nation of Israel. The text says that God will one day rebuild the house of David for the purpose of drawing the Gentiles who are called by his name to himself. And I think Amos was referring to the millennial kingdom here. It will be during the thousand-year reign of Christ when he returns and establishes his reign for a thousand years. That will be where God will uh, bring in the final number of his elect and beloved in terms of non-Jewish people. In any case, James used the text here to drive home the point that Peter is right. He was right a couple years ago when he testified to us, and he's right right here in reminding us God foreordained to save Gentiles and to do it apart from circumcision or any works of the law. James cited Amos 9, 11 to 12 for the express purpose of making it clear that we are saved by grace alone. We don't see circumcision in the Amos prophetic passage. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. This is what James has said to them. Part five, we're almost finished. The ecumenical ruling, verses 19 to 21. Isn't it pretty awesome, huh, how they're all debating and trying to figure it out, and you got... 
Peter that stood up, the head apostle, highest authority, says, nope, this is how it should be. I already told you about this. You got Paul and Barnabas that come in and give their experience, affirming what Peter has said. And then you have James saying, Peter's right. And let me show you why, because God had a plan to save Gentiles all along. You've seemed to miss that. He's not saving them by the law. He saved them by grace through faith alone. Isn't that cool how it's all illustrated there? That's the argument they made. Now, here's the ruling. This is where it gets crazy. I love the craziness of God's word at times. The word of God's not even crazy. It's my feeble, dumb mind that makes it crazy, right? 19, therefore my judgment is that, this is James speaking, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. I love that. But this part's where it gets, huh? But should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled, what on earth, and from blood. And then he says in 21, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What just took place? <coughs> After reading and, and studying together the testimonies of Peter, that reminder of Peter, and, and the testimonies of Paul and Barnabas, and even the testimony and scripture quotation of James, we might have been led to think that James would have stopped at verse 19, right? Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. End of debate. That's our ruling. They're just fine as they are. Don't burden them with anything else. Wouldn't we be led to believe that that's where it would end? Eh. No. We would think in our minds after studying this and the, and the, and the great argument that these you know, guys have made for faith alone, it would just stop at 19. We don't need to trouble. That's what James said. We don't need to trouble the Gentiles who turn to God with circumcision because it's a faith deal. We would think, yeah, that's it. That is my ruling case closed. Isn't that what James should have said? It is in 19, but wait a minute. That's not how it played out. James gave further instructions here. He tells the ecumenical council, this group, to instruct the Gentiles to abstain, to avoid, to rid themselves of four things according to the law of Moses. You saw them there, didn't you? What are they? Things polluted by idols. Sexual immorality. What has been strangled? And blood. What did James just do here? Did he replace circumcision with four new things? <laughs> Is it now going to be, this is the ecumenical ruling, is this it? Is it now going to be uh, salvation is by faith plus abstaining from things polluted by idols and from abstaining from sexual immorality and strangled things and blood? Did he command the ecumenical council to instruct the Gentiles to obey the law of Moses? The answer to all of these questions is no. But you're going to have to wait until next Sunday for the deeper explanation. <laughs> Cliffhanger. Hey, hey. 
You can read ahead if you want, but it's still going to be hard to figure out. So go for it. We're going to have to wait until next Sunday. We've run out of time, and I've run out of sermon. <laughs> I didn't even want to attempt to get into that stuff yet. You guys would be like, dude, we just missed two football games. Kill him. I certainly hope you plan to join us for the rest of the story and for the true meaning of what James has declared here. I'd like to uh, just invite you to, uh, before we take the communion elements, just to evaluate yourself and ask the Lord to, to, to reveal to you any sin that you have in your life, that you might confess sin right before him in this very moment before you take these elements. And you know what they represent, right? You know what that juice represents, the blood of Christ that not only bought Christians with his precious blood, but that bread too, it's a broken body, represents his broken body. We have the blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ represented right on those plates. And ultimately what they represent to us is our freedom in Christ. I can assure you as you enter into communion, don't be thinking, oh, I've got to add four more things to my, to my faith. I, maybe maybe I've got to get circumcised or, or whatever. No, 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 no. I'm just going to give you a deeper explanation. We've been destroying this kind of thinking for the last three weeks. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And those elements represent a new covenant being brought into that apart from the law that we would believe in Christ and receive his blessings and the salvation that he offers and his righteousness, that we would know we're sinners and that we need him and that we would receive what he has provided. These elements represent that in a really cool way. Be reminded during this time of communion that you don't have to walk out of here and try to earn anything with God. If you're in Christ, you have the maximum amount of favor possible. You can't walk out here and go, I need more favor. i got to listen to some of these other quack jobs around town. They're telling me if I do this, this, and this, and if I just obey this, I'll get more favor. There is no more favor. It all comes through that. you got all you need in Christ. All you need. Nothing more. It's all in him. Do you believe it? Take these elements and believe that today. It's just you. It's what you did. You poured out your blood for me to save me and to redeem me. You put yourself on a cross and suffered a horrendous death in my place. You did it vicariously for me. Believe that. and Rejoice in what he's done. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time. May we confess any sin that we have and may we enjoy these elements in fellowship with you and one another Remembering this new covenant. What is that new covenant? It's grace. It's faith. It's Christ. To the glory of God. According to the scripture alone. That we might be saved and redeemed. To become adopted sons and daughters. In your kingdom. In your family. Oh what a wonderful covenant that you've made. With people like me. Broken home, hard life, abandonment, the things that I have experienced, and how glorious it is to be made part of your family. 
Oh, how wonderful. Now, there's many here that feel that same way. May we rejoice in what you've provided for us. Full salvation, a full atonement. That we might believe that today and stop any effort to get anything from you. May we know that we are loved, that we are accepted, that we are valued by you, that the cross shows what a great price you paid for us infinitely more than anything. How wonderful it is that you've done for sinners like me and others here. May we rejoice in this communion time. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Help yourselves.